uh, quiz at the end, but rather to perhaps be reminded of something that you already know. Um, And if it's helpful, that reminder, beautiful, and if it's not, let it go. Over the past uh, couple of months, this last fall, on Monday nights we've been working with a set of teachings in Buddhism called the Paramitas, which are translated in different ways as the, the, the fruit of spiritual practice or the inner perfections of heart, or I like to describe them as a, um, a reflection of our own Buddha nature. Um, and what I like to do is to kind of review where we've been for 10 or 15 minutes. I was just talking with Rinpoche, said I wanted to speak about the, um, these qualities a bit, and then we could begin to have some dialogue about the paramitas and in uh, his understanding and, and teachings and tradition. Um, and the paramitas begin in a certain way as we try to understand our Buddha nature with a, with a certain kind of paradox. And um, as I've read on some other evenings this passage, in one of history's more unlikely acts of totalitarianism, the Chinese government in 2008 banned Buddhist monks in Tibet from reincarnating without government permission. This is true. According to a statement issued by the State Administration for Religious Affairs, the new law, which went into effect in 2008, strictly stipulates the procedures by which one is to reincarnate and is, quote, an important move to institutionalize management of reincarnation. <clears throat> so that's one way of looking at our human predicament, you know, getting the government involved um, in some way. And, um, of course, you can hear the, the humor in it and the absurdity of it. But the deep question about paramitas has to do with incarnation, with coming in and taking birth in a human body and remembering who we really are. Now, I'm grateful Rinpoche is here. I'm going to say a few things about his background as well. He comes from a common eastern Tibet, um, and he's a, he's a part of this newer generation of lamas um, who not only have learned English and travel between the worlds in, in the U.S. and in Europe as well as in, in Tibet and China, um, but he was also able to go from Tibet into China and Beijing and study there, be parts of the Chinese community, where he said he was actually met very well by many Chinese people, not the government, not what the Chinese military has done in Tibet, but many other people who are really appreciative of the Tibetan culture. And a lot of the work he's done beside running monasteries and taking teachings and carrying teachings from the Dzogchen lineage of Nyingma school and others has also been to serve the community in in the area, in remote area in Tibet where he is taking care of nomad families, building bridges. In some way, I guess your whole life is a bridge builder um, between cultures and worlds. Um, And these paramitas um, speak of, in some way, the bridge that we need to find within ourselves, as Rinpoche kind of uh, expresses it outwardly. Um, There's a kind of paradox, because in one way, we need to remember who we are, who was born into this incarnation in this body, um, our true spirit. And in that way, meditation isn't so much to develop something or become, you know, kinder or more concentrated or more virtuous or more patient. It's rather to remember the, the original innocence and beauty and um, spaciousness that, that was there from the day we were born and before that. Um, so there's no development of meditation. Meditation really is a letting go of our worries and fears in the small sense of self and returning back to the natural space of awareness that is always here for us and free and liberating because there's no circumstance that you can be in where it's not possible to have a free heart. <clears throat> Even in you know Nelson Mandela in 27 years in Robben Island prison, was able to walk out with this tremendous 
magnanimity and graciousness and um, compassion, forgiveness that transformed South Africa and much of the world, um, your heart can never be put in prison, your true nature. Um, But the paradox is this. You need to remember your true nature and you also need to remember your social security number, basically, that there are these two sides to... um, to our life, one of which is the particular culture and family and community. Mary Oliver writes this. She says, For years and years I struggled just to love my life. There's a lot of spiritual instruction in one line. For years and years I struggled just to love my life. And then the butterfly rose weightless in the wind. Don't love your life too much, she said, and vanished into the world. And this is like the line from T.S. Eliot where he writes, teach us to care and not to care. That there's some way in which we need to honor the particulars of our life and our community and our family and our responsibilities and love them and dedicate ourselves to them. And there how we mature and grow spiritually. And another to remember that this is just um, a dance that we're born into and it's temporary that we get a particular incarnation and body and um, we're not limited by that. And so the teachings have this paradox in that they encourage a kind of um, practice of generosity and integrity and patience and, and these are the paramitas of virtue and uh, truthfulness and dedication that we've talked about over these weeks. And yet in another way they say... You don't need to develop these things. You just need to stop and listen really deeply and find the sense of freedom that is always there in you. And from this place of freedom, there naturally comes compassion. There naturally is a connectedness. Um, it's, there was an image in, um, that I liked very much when I was living in Thailand of a huge old um, Buddha statue in the north of Thailand that was made of clay and very kind of rough and folk art-like, but it had been there for 500 or 800 years, a long time, and it was revered because it had been through all the storms and wars and so forth for such a long time. And then it started to crack a little, and before they patched it up, um, one of the monks took a flashlight and looked inside just to see, I wonder how they made this thing 800 years ago. And to his surprise, this glint of golden light came back. And then he looked in another crack, and another glint of golden light came out. And what they discovered inside was the largest casting, and one of the most beautiful, the largest golden image of the awakened Buddha that had been cast in Southeast Asia 800 years ago, that had been covered to protect it from marauding armies and changes of government. You know how that happens and other such things. Um, and so they uncovered it. And there's a certain way in which we get covered. The, the small sense of self, the, the traumas, the body of fear. And when we sit and meditate, we begin to experience all those layers, the, the things that we carry that are held in the body, the unfinished business, that need healing, that need our respect. But they're not who we really are. And the teachings of the paramitas are a reminder of the Um, inherent beauty or inherent goodness that's there in each of our spirit or our heart. My teacher Ajahn Chah said, do not seek after any particular states of mind and take them to be the goal, for they're not the essence of who you are. All the states and experiences are transient, not the ultimate. Instead, turn your attention to awareness itself and become the witness to that which arises and passes, the witness to truth. The nature of your own mind must be seen. Then you can stop. You can put all the conflicts down and rest. There's nothing more you need to do than this. The the question is not the future of humanity, as one teacher said, but the presence of eternity. The ability to stop and step back, not out of life, but rather to make space and see from the heart from a different perspective. And then when we do, these qualities of the paramitas um, come naturally. So that the teachings of generosity, yes, you can practice 
tentative giving and then brotherly or sister giving and then royal giving where you enjoy more and more the generosity. Not because you're supposed to, but as Rumi says, walking out of the treasury building, I feel generous. Anyone still sober in this weather has missed the point. You know, there's some way, and you all know it, that there's certain days where you feel such gratitude just for being alive and, and being present in this mystery. Um, and of course you want to help other people because they're, they're us. It's not like they're separate. It's your brother and sister, and then it's more than it's, it's who we are. And anybody who doesn't know that, you know, go and play with a little one-year-old or a two-year-old. They want to exchange stuff with you. They want it back, you know, and then they'll give it to you again. And they want, Because it's a game. It's not owned. It's us. You know, and integrity, the parameter, the perfection of, of virtue. Um, yes, there are trainings to speak thoughtfully and honestly and to act in ways that don't cause harm. In the monastery, the, the essence of it is simply a reverence for life. This little poem I like to read, it says, A bug crawls over the paper, leave him be, we need all the readers we can get. Right? <laughs> this is especially good for authors. But you get a sense that it's not um, that you're going to be some person with great virtue or great generosity, but that there is within us, when we stop and feel and listen, um, a love of life. Every being loves life. And, and a respect and, and a reverence for life because, again, this is what we've been born into. Um, generosity, integrity, renunciation. Good thing in this culture. It's Christmas season, maybe especially. Um, I don't know if Rinpoche's ever seen this. This is a a card from the drugstore, a birthday card called the Dalai Lama's Birthday Party. Um, have you seen? And it shows a Dalai Lama cartoon figure with his trademark sunglasses and these little smiling monks next to him. And he has a great big present that he's opened, all the wrappings on the ground. And he's looking and you can't see anything in the box. And he says, wow, nothing, just what I always wanted. <laughs> right? <clears throat> and you start to see when you meditate that it's not so much how you can fill up your life, but actually it's a letting go. It's a making space. Because then in the next moment you can see the eyes of the person next to you that you love, or, or the sunset, or remember what you care about most deeply. And so the meditation in some way develops generosity, integrity, renunciation, um, wisdom. In another way, it just lets us sit and return to the space of awareness and knowing that can see from the heart rather than from our busyness. One Tibetan Lama, Kalo Rinpoche, put it this way. He said, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you see, you will discover that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And this is the wisdom paramita, because there's some way in which we know this. We know that we're not separate from the trees that breathe carbon dioxide and oxygen with us. We're not separate from our mother's bodies and the bodies of our grandparents and great-grandparents, that the, the genetic code that came through us since Lucy in Africa and going back before that. We're woven into this garment of destiny, as it was called. And being nothing, we are everything. That we, that we participate in some ways as a separate being, but in the deepest knowing, and you've all had the experience, walking in the mountains or by the ocean or making love or um, listening to the most amazing piece of music, or just that moment when, you know, you, uh, perhaps you get this phone call from your doctor you know, saying something terrible, and then then the phone rings. I'm sorry, we we this is the wrong test results. You're you know that wasn't true, you know. And you go, oh wow, I get my life back again. And there's so many ways that we see and remember. Or you're there for the birth of a child, and you remember, oh yeah, this great mystery. And in this mystery, we get to to dance from the place of of wisdom and and this spirit.
of being everything and nothing. So somehow we develop this in our spiritual practice, in our meditation, but in other ways we don't develop anything, we remember. Um, and I, I, I think I've said enough to start with. I mean, I could go on and on. You know how it is here, Monday nights. Um, but I will um, uh, maybe ask Rinpoche a few questions, if I might, about the paramitas. Um, in, in, in your tradition, because the, the, these qualities of heart and mind... Um, are taught throughout the Buddhist world. I'm interested to know whether you teach people to develop them, you know, to train in generosity or virtue or patience, or whether you teach people just to be aware and um, just to rest in in awareness. Um, how, <clears throat> how do you work with them, Rinpoche? Um, I think this... The best on things that uh, early you said is like the really beautiful things I can think that is like you know we really that what you explain is that way is useful useful to understanding them and recognizing them but then it's your question in here. Um, there's a two ways, I think. In one hand, that uh, we all have a, one essential Buddha nature, which is like ultimate wisdom that we all living with. And every single person moment is that we just spend and we enjoy and experiencing everything that is within that. So that we are same. We are in one big family. We are in almost say one essence. <clears throat> and um, so everybody's like a happiness. Everybody's doesn't like unhappiness. So there's a many you know comments that we are. So it's like a think as a we are in one. And that sense, sense of that, then it's like uh, there is a like we can say whether we think it works with a certain way to develop, try to develop. Maybe it works for me and works for you to try to develop these qualities. But actually it does not work that way. It may work for you, but it may not work for me. Mm. Um, because there is a like a, that our interesting and our characteristics, and there's a, some certain sense of uh, the degrees of uh, sometimes like uh, maybe, you know, genetic things. Well, there's a certain, some certain science ways and also spiritual ways. Something is like we're quite different. We're same as a one, but at the same time we're different. Interesting and things are. In that sense, these two techniques of whether they are just like a being with us, this experiment is, um but they have a names for each of this to uh, make that things that, you know, we are a little bit being lazy sometimes. And there is a, some things that you can, you know, point out and that you can read it and you can name it. And there's a more chance that we can work on it. So work on to, I think, uh, develop that. And then other sense is there's a, it is beyond the name, beyond the um, list. And that is always being with us. But we just like, you know, 
not really paying so much attention, I think, the inside. We're just like distracted with so many things, and there's like not so much time for the true nature of this as experiment as a one's own wisdom that's always being. So that's so, so, so let me ask you a very specific question then. Yes. When I when I practice myself, I notice in looking at these qualities of renunciation or wisdom or loving kindness or you know generosity that one of the ones I have a lot of difficulty with or the most difficulty with is patience because I'm fundamentally an impatient person um, and I'm also a bit of a speed freak in some ways. Um, I'm speedy, we'll say. Um, <laughs> translate that. So, um, uh, you know, and then I read this thing from the Buddhist text where the Buddha says, um, do not ignore the effects of the practice of patience. Um, by being patient, and thinking will come come of nothing, just as the gradual fall of raindrops fills the water jar, so too, with patience, a, a wisdom and compassion will grow, something like that in the Buddhist text. How, how would you instruct somebody who's impatient like me? Um, what is a good way to practice? I think, you know... You almost sometimes need to... My wife really wants to know the answer to this, <laughs> too, so this is very important. <laughs> you, there is, a, like, the Buddhist philosophy says, like, a, you know, uh, cock, or what do you call, like, a hand, the chicken, chicken, the mother, chicken, hand, hand first, or hand, chicken first, okay. you know. Hand first, okay. Or, um, or egg, chicken or egg, okay. We're getting chicken or egg, right. okay. All so, right. That's a terrible sound, like hen or chicken, you know. No, no. We all have a dinner already, and so just like say egg and you know hen. So it's like uh, tricky to which is the first, which is the second. Mm-hmm. At the same time, this wisdom and uh, you know patience. So, um, but Buddhist viewpoint, I think, according to actually to developed or in touch with a patient, you need to give a minute, give a minute for relax mm. to your capacity or your true nature of the wisdom to just like erase that uh, the patient's level mm. from that. So they think that is to have a more... Um, what do you call it? It's like more stability and the more quality of that patient have maybe stay, well, say, longer huh. and last long. And also that is more the patient with a life, lively patient. So I, so I should take a breath or two and slow down a little bit before, when I'm impatient, and make a little bit of space to pay attention rather than just keep Yes, that moving. is the... Okay. My wife will like that. I'm sure she's going to be pleased. Um, uh, Tibet, the culture, is enormously generous, talking about the paramita of generosity. One of the things that I experienced being in Buddhist countries in Asia, whether it was being with Tibetan people or people in Thailand or Burma, is this tremendous outpouring of generosity. There's a lot of faith, uh, um, but even more than that, there's a kind of welcoming and warmth in that. Um, how do you learn that? How does that happen? Is it just, you know, when you're, when you're little, you grow up? Or how does somebody learn to have that kind of warmth and generosity? Um, is there practices that one can do? I think there's um, one thing is like, um, one thing is that in a childhood and being in this Buddhist country and uh, raised by the parents that there are Buddhist practitioners and environment there. It's some kind of, in a way, ourselves, we don't know where we got it or we don't, you know. But I felt strongly it is not only Buddhist teaching, formal teachings that I, I can really observe a lot, but I just got from like my own mother, my own parents. 
to when I was a child, you know, like play with other children or something. I remember the, how they taught me to being kind of, you know, shared with my toys for others. And like all these things, how it works and how you need to be friends with. So that is kind of in a way, at that time, it's hard, of course, you know. So we not much believe. But the later on, getting more and more older, those practices and those teachings are more powerful and more it's like a rejoicing. I could be rejoiced. And then in terms of Buddhist philosophy and practicing on the real taking action, no, you're, you're, you're on training. Not, you're no child anymore. Then it's something like uh, I need to seriously take into this as a practice and path. So then it's like this two uh, meeting point, kind of my own child experience, and like whole environment that is a really for me, it's like the environment is like a sort of, you know, one big support. But then at the same time, you know, my environment things are sometimes that's a childhood, you have to remember and everything. But the moment of your own, you know, being mindfulness and try and concentrated for things that is a, in a way that is a history that is a, the the experience that you can feel actually you don't need to feel you don't need to remember everything that what your mother says or you know but the moment of contemplating almost the power of you know get everything in there so that is <clears throat> one I think one way that uh, can think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with yeah, so mm-hmm. <clears throat> for generosity. So, do you when? How old were you when you went in? When you first went into the monastery and left your family? Um, it is uh, nineteen, eighteen, nineteen. But uh, before that, I had a tutor teacher that you know we just hiding, really hiding in a small tent, and you know pretending that we are not doing any Buddhist things there. Oh. Just like, you, you know, had to being in a casual clothes and like, you know, my teacher wears the ordinary robes and like we're trying to be really just just like a child and, you know, adult, adults just playing there. Because it was dangerous if they, yes, if they knew you were a, yes, a lama? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, whole Buddhist is forbidden that time, you know. Mm. <clears throat> So that must have been very difficult in a way to be, to to be receiving all these teachings and yes. yet, as a as a young man, and yet not to be able to let anybody know. Somehow. But one thing is again, it's back to my parents, kind mm-hmm. of you know, because I just really grows with them. My uh, father and mother are really devoted practitioner, mm-hmm. and uh, what they did is like uh, <clears throat> this uh, um, prayer flags. The prayer flags that you see now, that the, each of these prayer flags, they represent for five wisdoms and like there's a mantras to, you know, uh, move through the elements and sending away. So like, uh, and they have a great meanings and they're really so sad that we cannot put that into this, you know, uh, visible at the day. What they did is like uh, at night, um, let's say like, you know, midnight, at two o'clock, they get up, put in this into tent, the ropes, you know, tied up. And then it's like uh, five or four in the morning, they need to get up and take down all those mm. things to roll. And when I see this, like how much time they are spending and just giving and just like opening for doing these things, that is for me as a really kind of, you know, um, uh, inspiring and encourage how this path can happen, you know. So things like that. My father have a little prayer where, and he did put that, it's like a big rice bag. And then in the day, he put this in the middle of that and put the rice over and make sure rice is coming low, 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 you know, when you're cooking everything, to all the way down. 
and the night coming up and doing this, you know, prayers like the, and things like that. Actually, this is they are giving the time for doing these things. So that's mm-hmm. the kind of you know things that uh, really, you know, not necessarily is like that. I got on a seating. And cushion, special throne, and like throne, <laughs> and to you know my own like of the Islamic trainings. Like I mean, I'm sure the tremendous benefit in there too. But just like you know, being as a what we are, uh, there's lots of chance. Hmm. It's very moving, and and to to hear that you have to practice in secret for all those years. Um, here we are in the West. And uh, I, I think it would be wrong to say that it's, well, I don't know whether it's easy or difficult. It's difficult in other ways. We didn't have the kind of parents you did, at least most of us didn't. My parents didn't get up in the middle of the night and put their prayer flags up in the, mm-hmm. you know, although they were, you know, they were loving in the way that they could be. But we didn't have quite that kind of childhood that you might have had in a Buddhist culture. Um, uh, and we also have an easy access to teachings in a certain way. They're just here. We don't have to work to get them. Um, uh, what have you seen in teaching Westerners? What helped? You have so much faith from your parents and so much inspiration. What helps us to have to remember this possibility to have that same kind of inspiration? Have you seen what? What helps? You know what, what um, help us? I felt that here that environment is not so easy. The environmentally here is like, uh, in a way, it's not so easy. Why? It's like, you know, whatever um, there's a million people in the United States, like there's a really small number of uh, Buddhist practitioners or meditators, you know, to who meditate, even though here's like, you know, tonight lots of people. Uh, uh, but this is a great things to see. But if you go back to whole number of you know United States and uh, so there is a like very small number, that means we not have always seeing these practitioners everywhere every time where mm-hmm. they're sitting each other and meditating and inspiring and so that's little opportunities their small window. So that's I think in the people here and here need almost even more. Like kind of you know what you call like uh, this uh, uh, tolerance and to try to put in a you know soft move hat to make take this opportunity, so it's like there's not match, you know. Once you get that, something is precious, and then also I'm thinking, whereas I often feel that this formulas of like six parameters or ten parameters, whatever you you know call. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> um, the time of Buddha, there is no vehicle, and there's no right, red light, there's no green light. Uh, even time of like some of these great masters, like recently, 100 years ago, at that time there is a no red light. Uh-huh. And also there's no post, post office lines. Uh-huh. So and all these things are appearing in the modern world and significantly in your world is that uh, people struggling, they cannot wait and they don't want to let someone come into your line if someone comes and people get angry and mad at them. So all those things, I think the time for we could be exercised and practice. So those are the things I think really powerful, that opportunity that we could use. That ancient time, the Buddhas and later on, these masters, they just, you know, the caves without like a window or door, there's wind and uh, there's like a, what do you call this, uh, <clears throat> winter blizzards and like this, you know, things coming and they have to keep the practice of tamo and themselves be warmed, but nothing else to be expected. So, but here, you have a warm bed and so everything. So, but it's like, practices are different. So, now how we can do as a luck, you know, without being a cave, you know, when is it driving, 
the red lines come, that is the opportunity. So. Yeah, thank you. Red, yeah, so we, we, it's true, we have really different circumstances. And um, I, I know somebody was behind me on Sir Francis Drake today, and the light turned green, and I didn't move fast enough, and they honked their horn. Sure. And then I thought, okay, I could slow down a little bit. <laughs> you know, that little, that little part of, hey, dude, you know, you're not going to speed me up. And then I thought, oh, this guy's probably having a really hard day or he might be in an emergency. I don't know what is happening. But the, the red light is a great place. So here, this is our, instead of our caves, we have traffic, right? <laughs> um, or, but we also have a lot of shopping. I mean, this is, we're about to go into this Christmas season where there's a great, I mean, there's beautiful things in the season of generosity. Absolutely. But also there's a lot of the, kind of energy of consuming and buying and so forth. How can we practice with that? Um, I think you do this. People are like, enjoy to decorate the Christmas trees and like, you know, the lighting up that. It's like hanging our prayer flags, right? Yes. And those so you put lots of effort and with nice and like whole family come enjoy different colors, lights, you know. But in a way, you can that is a little bit specially dedicated, also sometimes really useful. The, your mind tension have a something like you know, um, not only being the Christmas as a like sort of you know putting lights and family get together, but there is a some kind of you know the union of happiness. Also, there is a like great happiness of every. F- family members come together and great smiles of each face and, you know, talking family and chatting and all these things, giving, you know, uh, big hugs each other and all that thing is a kind of life and happiness. And uh, there is a, something like wisdom that you could share through this kind of experience, warm hardness. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the things that you could really easily to dedicated this as your, you know, paramita practices. Mm. So, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, you're spending uh, gifts, you know, all these things, and uh, generously you're just, you know, passing and exchange. In a way, it's like Christmas, is, I'm excited too, you know, for Christmas sometimes. <laughs> the, this pe- looking at the people... They exchange the presents and things like, you know, how, how exciting. So <clears throat> those things are like really open-hearted mind each other, you know. The moment of that, I think, you know, what our main things are like when they exchanging this, you know, gifts and like, people are really focused. <laughs> <laughs> it's like meditation. <laughs> Really looking, see every you know fault opening and try to see what's in that, you know. That's the some ways maybe how we meditate to finding true natural wisdom to without distracted to just directly looking into. So that's the kind actually we can you know be really useful. So I felt, you know, enjoy to look at. That's a little bit like um, uh, my teacher in Thailand, Ajahn Chah. Um, Sometime after I'd lived in the forest monastery, many other Westerners started to come. And so he made a special monastery just for Western students that's still there, um, where the language was in in European English rather than in Thai. Um, And... um, after a few years, some of the monks there decided to have a Christmas tree. And they put a Christmas tree in the monastery up next to the altar where the Buddha was. And it disturbed the village people there a bit because they said, we built this whole monastery for these Westerners who came who are going to learn Buddhist meditation. And now they're putting a Christmas tree. And they got <laughs> quite, they complained and they got upset. And so they marched over to see Ajahn Chah, the master, you know, with some of the monks, and, 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 and they, they, you know, they said, we feed these monks and we care for them and so forth, and we thought they were doing Buddhist practice, and now they've got this Christmas tree, and it just doesn't seem right. 
And Ajahn Chah listened and, and, and then he said, well, I don't know much about Christianity, but people have been telling me a little bit about Christmas. And he said, so my understanding is that the teachings in Christmas are those of generosity, just as you were saying, Rinpoche, that people offer things to one another and that there's a spirit of kindness and loving kindness in Christmas and, and also that there's a spirit of forgiveness in the Christian teachings and, 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 and teachings as well of uh, a virtue of not causing harm to others, if, whether it's turning the other cheek or avoiding you know, stealing and lying and so forth. Is that true? And he said, so those sound like very good Dharma teachings to me. <laughs> the villagers are what? He said, but you're right to the villagers. They, we shouldn't celebrate Christmas in the monastery. So how about if we call it Chris Budimus? <laughs> <laughs> and everybody was happy and they went back and they had their tree. So much as much as you said, Rimache. <clears throat> I have a, 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 a different question to ask. As we go on in talking about these qualities of Buddha nature, and some of it is wisdom that allows us to, as you said, to take a pause, whether it's at the red light, you know, or being impatient as I might be, or just to stop and listen and rest in the space of mindfulness and awareness itself rather than being as reactive and, and lost as we might be. And more and more to do that gives a kind of stability, as you said, to our, to our presence and our life, a kind of wisdom. Um, that's married in some way to the next quality of the paramitas, which is loving kindness and compassion, which is kind of the warm-heartedness that you were just talking about, Christmas. Um, and I'm just going to say a few things about loving kindness, Maitri Metta, and then ask you for some teachings. It's said that in the... In the Buddhist text, it said that as you uh, remember or cultivate or develop or simply rest in the true connection of your life with others, um, loving kindness grows. And there are all these beautiful meditations. There's a meditation of metta, of loving kindness, that we've often done here on Monday nights and in our retreats, where you practice offering. Um, the intentions of loving-kindness toward, toward yourself, to loved ones, to friends, benefactors, people all around. And eventually then you take um, difficult people and even your, you know, your enemies or the most difficult people and you can hold them with loving-kindness. And it's said that as one cultivates or remembers or feels that you have within you the great heart of a Buddha that can love no matter what, um, your dreams become sweeter and you fall asleep more easily and you waken more contented, it says in the Buddhist text. And um, your health gets better. There's a kind of healing quality to loving kindness. And devas and angels will love and protect you. And men and women will also love you, if you're interested in that. Um, and weapons won't harm you, it says. You know, all the weapons won't work, poisons, all those things if you have... And if you lose things, they'll be returned to you as you grow in loving kindness. Um, and uh, people will welcome you everywhere, and your thoughts become more pleasant. These are this is a recitation you do as you begin to do the cultivation of loving kindness, or remind yourself. And animals will sense this and love you, and elephants will bow to you. It says, and there is a little you can, as I say, you can try it in the zoo and see whether you know. And your voice becomes sweeter and your babies are happy in the womb and growing up. And if you fall off a cliff, a tree will always be there to catch you, it says. And the world will become filled with Buddhas all around you. This is one of the things that I like, you know, that you start to see the beauty, even in the people who are difficult or stressed or, you know, problematic in some way. There's a way in which you see the beauty in every being. Um, so this quality both can grow in us through our practice, through taking the time to quiet down, as you said, or slow down and look anew at the, you know, that beautiful moon. Did you see the autumn moon as you came here tonight? You know, and just to appreciate um, that we can live in the present more, um, this loving kindness comes. It also comes, um, it comes with the love and appreciation. It also comes in the face of difficulty. 
um, when there is um, loss or suffering, as uh, Elie Wiesel, the Nobel laureate, writes, he says, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. So we're given a certain measure of both joy and, and the, the almost unbearable beauty of the world is there for us each day to behold and also a certain measure of sorrows and loss. Um, and how do we touch these or how do we bring our Buddha nature, the spirit of awakening um, and the open heart, even to that measure of difficulties? And there's a story that I've read over many, many years on retreats and I'm going to read it tonight again just because it feels um, <coughs> illustrative of uh, this quality of, of love and compassion. Because William Blake said, um, uh, if one is to do good, it must be done in the minute particulars. General good is the plea of the hypocrite, the scoundrel, and the flatterer. So it's not like, oh, great, you know, let's do this good thing. But it actually has to be done by living in the reality of the present where we are and the circumstance. So this is a story from Richard Selzer, who is a surgeon uh, at Yale University. And he writes of, an, of a surgery he performs. He says, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clown-like. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be this way from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the other side of the bed in the evening lamplight, and they gaze at one another quite generously. The young woman speaks to me. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods, is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And all at once I know who he is. I understand and lower my gaze. For one is not bold in an encounter with the gods. And unaware of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth and I so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. And I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. we have a capacity to touch both the beauty and the pain of the world with a loving heart, with a compassionate heart. It is given to us. It is one of the, not only the beauties, but it's the, it's the magnificence of your Buddha nature. Um, and the question then for us in our spiritual life is, um, how, do we, how do we open that? How do we stay in touch with that? How do we allow this great heart of a Buddha that we are born with to really blossom even <clears throat> in the difficulties of our life? So I would ask you, Rinpoche, anything you might say about loving kindness, compassion, how do you teach it? Um. <clears throat> This is on. Um, well, whole Buddhist teaching actually is about the loving and kindness in a way that is the main subject. Um, but I think to getting in touch with some of these um, 
connections that not only we saying the compassion and loving, but it's kind of, you know, getting experienced with that and to seeing it into actually, you know, one's own mind and the feeling and the notions can feeling feel it. So that is the really good opportunity, chance that then we recognize it and then we push it, it, and then we will like bring into a life, and then we bring into like you know inward and like uh, the others and friends and so on. So that is the something that you know really how compassion works. This needs definitely also the same same thing, similar things that we need. Just looking inwards. Um, like things like, you know, sounds like this meditation in a Monday, people like come here every day, for example. Just moment of be quietness and really beautiful moment that you just kind of sit and you're not talking, you're not mentally to, you know, communicate and like uh, sometimes, you know, that we are very active mentally broadcasting and sort of things many happening, but try to be free from that and really be just be present and silent and happy and uh, admire and sort of delightfully. And when is that kind of that quietness and that freedom, that freedomness then is the great chance to see and recognizing that I think really ourself, who we are. So that is also like one key point to first things to, according to, you know, I think generate the compassion. We need this to understanding of our true nature, who we are. Then the nature allows the really true quality, true quality of person. And then it's this like uh, loving kindness is like the, um, the sun and rays. You know, if there's no sun, there's no rays. But uh, there is a, if there's a loudness of the, this relaxed wisdom moment of resting, then there is a chance of the compassion that you can compassionate and loving things just naturally can generate. That is like, uh, I think, uh, we will very much be the meditations, uh, meditators be experiencing through that way. That's us. Did you ever have a, a difficult time in doing loving kindness or compassion? Was it ever hard for you? Yes. Yeah? Yes. How, uh, um, what was that like? It is like, uh, I think, hard part is like not recognizing. Not recognizing, you know, where is this compassion can come. Sometimes we see, okay, here is the somebody suffering or someone really uh, like, you know, uh, struggling with the situation. And uh, we'll try to help with it. In a way, that is the compassion. We think, okay, we are being nice for them and helping it and solving the problem and I'm very being kind. At the moment, it is, you can call that as a compassion. But when you've done this, like at the same time, when the action is done, the compassion is done. <laughs> you know, at the same time, it's like kind of work party, it's finished. Hmm. So the true compassion hmm. is in the mind that kind of, you know, remains. And when circumstances comes, there is just right there. Not much of even gap between. So that is something like, you know, took me really, you know, confusion to how hmm. the compassion is like that you address. So the beautiful. So it's 
first that we quiet ourselves because it's hard to have connection with um, the deep compassion and loving kindness until we can quiet the mind and open the heart some and rest in the present. And then there comes compassion or love. But what you're saying also is that sometimes it can feel a, a little bit artificial or mechanical. Well, I'm doing it, I'm acting, but it's not, it's not really flowered so much. And then by becoming aware of that, it becomes possible to feel a deeper kind of compassion in which it's not that I'm trying to help that person, but it comes more naturally um, as a connection. Is that, am, am I understanding you yes, right? Yes, that is very much. I sometimes do these uh, examples. I do use this like, you know, flower in a vase, the vase flower, this beautiful flower ranger make this, you know, beautiful about the flower in a vase with water, clear mm-hmm. water. It's a flower. It's beautiful. It can give joy. It can give like a insight, you know, eye insight and pleasures. And here is the also the flowers that are connected with the rich soil. And they are just like being here. And they are like with their essence. Hmm. And uh, it's both flower. Both is a flower. Hmm. But here the one with a kind of, you know, rich soil. To continually growing. Continually blossoming. So that's the some things I think I feel the between this, you know, two different ways that um, express the compassion. Mm, thank you. And in in the practice of both loving kindness and compassion, one begins um, by generating or um, reciting the intentions of love toward oneself or toward other beings or toward, you know. Um, teachers or benefactors and so forth. But there's also in the practice of compassion the willingness to breathe in and out and to to let the sufferings of others touch the heart. And in the Tibetan version, it's Tonglen. In the Theravada version of compassion, one also allows the sufferings of the world to touch the heart um, and actually lets that lets ourselves feel that. Do you do that kind of practice? Have you practiced Tonglen? Is that a practice? Oh, yes, yes. And how does that fit with your awareness practice? There's Tonglen here, and then there's resting in the space of awareness. How do, you, how do those fit together for you? I think the Tonglen practice is, is like your practice with your breath. And uh, in a way, it's like you're um, emerging and you're harmonizing with that, you know, that may be some things that you don't like to look at or some things mm. that, you know, you, it's hard to look at, but you try to make your eye open and to make it and bring into it and exchange the, you know, best quality and healing that situation. And then it's like taking this, you know, um, difficulties into. But that also like uh, at the same time, if you can stay with the, you know, this, um, the ease of the awareness, is, you know, not move the best from that. So that would be, we said, it's very um, stability, it's more subtleness. Sometimes you leave the place and going there, that is like a, you could be lost. Like, you know, I'm rather sitting on my chair to doing this then and coming there, then I just lose the seats of the, you know, basic, uh, this uh, fundamental visitor. So you take your seat as the, <clears throat> as the Buddha would, if you will, and, and keep this sense of being centered and open and spacious. And then from this place, allow yourself to, to draw in with the breath or have the, the sufferings or the difficulties touch your heart and breathe out compassion and kindness. Is that... that that's right, yes. Um, rather than leaning forward or losing yes. yourself in it, somehow yes. you put them together in that way. I, I see quite often in the West um, had some kind of, you know, really people are sometimes too overwhelmed. 
uh, there's a chance of like doing almost this too much or, or too soon to too much or something like that. There is a need some balance hmm. to make uh, subtleness to very good foundation and kind of, you know, stay sweet. Uh, the relaxedness is hmm. really, I think, yeah, helpful. And then also one other things I can think. Um, I've seen quite a many people in the here. Uh, they're angry with themselves, you know, and in some situations, you know. I'm angry at myself, mm-hmm. you know. Here is like, and so definitely need to practice compassion for self. Mm. So when we are kind of, you know, angry with ourselves, then there is also no chance we can develop the compassion to others. Kind of, you know, because the mind or this whole uh, sort of uh, field is disrupted. Disrupted emotionally, it's kind of, you know, disturbance is happening. So then it's like hard to really found, really kind of, you know, relaxedness and inspire mind that you can, you know, easily do compassion for other practices. So it's like very, you know, and also like we have a Buddha nature and we, you know, sometimes say it's like being respect for self and being compassionate for itself is Nothing wrong. It's good. So I think we'll let that be the last question. And maybe we'll do a couple of minutes of meditation of compassion and loving kindness as we end for the evening. Let yourself be comfortable and at the same time, because it's hard to do loving kindness if your knees are killing you. So you want to sit somewhat comfortably. Just for two or three minutes, let your eyes close gently. And as Rinpoche is saying, especially in the West where there is so much um, self-judgment and unworthiness, one begins traditionally the loving-kindness meditation with, uh, and compassion with a care for oneself. And when we can feel that love for ourselves, then it naturally grows to embrace all other beings. So let your breath be gentle at the heart as if you could breathe in and out of the chest. And using very simple phrases of well-wishing, may I be filled with loving-kindness. And may I be safe. We all really want to be safe. May I be well in body and mind. May I be truly happy. The image from the Buddha is of a mother holding her most beloved child. With loving kindness, you hold yourself with the same care, with each breath. And compassion. Let yourself be aware of the measure of sorrows that you have been given in this life. Each of us has a certain measure of sorrows and struggles and suffering. May I hold the sorrows of this life in great compassion and tenderness. Breathe in and out. May I be safe and filled with loving kindness.
And with these simple phrases now, let the heart open to feel all those seated around you, this whole room of beings. And Rinpoche, who's come from all the way on the other side of the earth, all those who cared for you this evening. And then beyond this room, let the spirit of loving kindness extend from this building in this room. As you hold all those around in loving kindness, may all who are seated with us be held in loving kindness. And may all be safe. Be well. Be held in compassion, their struggles. And may the loving kindness of this moment spread from this room like a beacon of light out across the land, the Bay Area, the continent and the whole world in every direction radiate so that any moment of quieting the mind this evening, of a moment of loving kindness or compassion that grows in us, be offered and shared out for all beings so that all beings may be held in loving kindness in every direction and all beings be safe. May all beings be well, far and near, young and old, human and non-human, animals, every being. And may the great heart of loving kindness and compassion be with you in the weeks ahead. And may all beings be free. May you carry this illumination to all that you meet and all that you touch. So I thank you for your kind attention, your generosity this evening, your support. Um, It's a pleasure to sit together. And I thank you, Rinpoche, very much for coming all the way from the nomadic mountains of Kham and Tibet and your monastery and being with us. And see you next week. Mark Coleman will be here in the week after. We'll do our Christmas. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.